Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. I'm your host, Joe Schunkweiler, a physician and former health tech executive now supporting startups and investors at Amazon Web Services. Today, I welcome Dr. Ryan Grant to the podcast. Dr. Grant is a neurosurgeon and the CEO and founder of Vori Health, a company building a new kind of virtual medical care. Ryan shares his experience as a repeat founder and thoughts on what limits the U.S. healthcare system when it comes to developing new and innovative models. Enjoy. Dr. Ryan Grant, founder and CEO of Vori Health, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I would love to start uh, by sort of a walk through your background and your journey to, to Vori Health and how you got here. Absolutely. Um, story, background is neurosurgeon by training, was at the University of Pennsylvania for medical school and went up to Yale University to train in neurosurgery and then the complex and minimally invasive spine fellowship. And then um, ended up getting recruited to Geisinger Medical Center and being onboarded to be their second neurosurgeon for the Centers of Excellence program, the Walmart Lowe's McKesson Direct Contracting Program. Um, was at Geisinger for several years, uh, built several companies before this. The one right before this co-founded a staffing company called uh, Nomad Health, um, trying to make getting jobs easier, helping place doctors and nurses easier, both in temp and permanent was the original thesis as we've grown. And then before that, medical device development, before that built another company. Uh, but of all the things I've done, um, Vori Health excites me enough that I actually shut my clinical practice down during the pandemic to work on this 200% of the time. And so I no longer operate and um, left Geisinger formally um, in January. I was going to ask about the transition from clinical medicine to business, but it sound like you, sounds like you did both for a long time leading up to this full-time move over to Vori. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, my upbringing, my dad's a small business owner, so I was involved in accounting at like age six, seven years old, which is definitely normal upbringing. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> contracting, negotiating with legal counsel, built my first company in my early um, preteen years, and then went from there. Uh, business and medicine were always separate in my mind in my early years. Always was fascinated by medicine and surgery since I was a kid. Um, probably around college time or high school time, started to realize or come to the conclusion that you could blend them together. And um, it would evolve from there um, in terms of healthcare innovation, um, physician innovation, and really having a healthy disrespect for the status quo. And I, I think if you walk around a hospital, it's like everything will make you crazy. Everything can be improved. And it's a great place to, to in essence, to be a lab of like, well, why do we do things like that? And why is it like the DMV? And why is TSA so difficult to get through? And why is this annoying? And, and it's just on and on and on. And does it have to be that way? Um, besides the heavy hand of regulations and relatively the recalcitrant mindsets of most of healthcare for change, the sky's the limit. So why, just because a process is a process, I like a quote um, uh, from Jeff Bezos, um, plug you guys at Amazon. <laughs> we know him. Um, <laughs> is, do, do you own the process or does the process own you? And I would say in most of healthcare, um, the process owns the people. 
and it's been tradition and it's dogma. We've done this for 60 years and that's how it's been. And no one's thought about changing it. Nobody wants to change it. Similar to like, why does the DMV have one out of five stars on Google? Like, there's no incentive to change it, even though everybody complains about it. Right. And I love that, that view of the hospital health system as a, like a laboratory, just a series of pain points, which is always something that you try to, to uh, identify and uh, attack when you're you know, embarking on an entrepreneurial venture. Um, and in that same vein, just sticking to Nomad for a second, what were you seeing in the marketplace that, that led to Nomad? Because that, that company has really, really taken off. Yeah, it's um, back in the time, um, one of my co-founders, who's also a neurosurgeon at Yale University, um, is why does credentialing suck? Like, why does it suck to get credentials? That's like, why is getting a job so difficult for a clinician? Why is medical malpractice insurance so challenging and, and obtuse? And so <clears throat> originally looking at the uh, thesis for can you make credentialing better? Can you make hiring better? Can you make medical malpractice insurance better? Like those three things. So do you need those packages? If you get hired, who's your insurance carrier? You need to get credentialed in some way. And so that evolved. Uh, all right, well, starting the staffing market to make getting hiring easier, which needs credentialing, which needs medical malpractice insurance, et cetera, et cetera, to just make onboarding better, faster, more convenient, and just remove friction, uh, cut some of the fat out. And so um, that was uh, started in the temporary staffing market, and that remains where most of it is in terms of hospitals' pain points of looking for ebbs and flows of, of, of staffing as they need, have mostly for nurses, but uh, also when we first started uh, physicians and then moving into allied health and other types of folks that health systems need to operate and two-sided marketplaces. You got the health systems or practices who are looking for folks. And then on the opposite side, you have your clinicians who are looking for great opportunities. So it's, it's building out a two-sided marketplace and a, and a um, healthcare ecosystem that can be annoying and frustrating. And so you need to remove the friction. Um, anytime you start, I think some, a new venture, there's always the uphill inertia to get up. I sometimes think in some of these healthcare ventures that the uphill inertia can be more than you'll find in the consumer journey, just because of sometimes the heavy hand of regulations and just incumbent um, status quo. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And is there a is there a single thread that then brings you to founding Vori? I know they're very different businesses, but like, is there? What kind of needs were you seeing for Vori, and what what was the muscle memory that you developed from? the no bad journey that led to, to where you are today? No, that's a great question. If you, if you ask the um, angel investors from Nomad, it's like been talking about a concept like Rory for many, many, many years, um, even, even before Nomad came into existence. It's just been an evolution of thought process. And what we are for those listening is medical practice. Best way to think about this would be like a doctor on demand or now called included health um, for specialty care. So we're a full stack medical practice um, starting in the musculoskeletal sector. So back, neck, hip, knee, hand, foot. We employ our clinicians. And so we employ physical medicine physicians and sports medicine and 
physician assistants and nurse practitioners and health coaches and social workers and registered dietitians and physical therapists and and I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, actually in evidence-based care teams. And what are we trying to solve for by being virtual first? Um, I don't think you, just as a side tangent, I don't think you can do everything virtually. I think you also need to empower and work with on the ground providers, but I also don't think you can do everything on the ground. So several things solving for is building out a platform um, that can expand beyond musculoskeletal one time. That's just the laser focus. This is like act one, scene one of a Broadway show. Great right. startups and great sequences. And that working on the front lines as a surgeon is the unnecessary or inappropriate surgical rates and across the planet is not small. And so it depends on what, if you look at the centers of excellence data, which is public data from 2019 Harvard Business Review, they report a 50% inappropriate surgical indication. A more conservative data is 25%. The range in the literature for joints is 15 to 30%. It's not a U.S. problem. It's a global problem. So not picking on anybody and individually. This is a systemic um, of indications for surgery are just more loose than they need to be. Um, and surgery certainly has its place and you want best surgeons. And don't get me wrong, it's, I'm a surgeon myself and it helps a lot of people. We just use it too much. Um, need to use it responsibly. Like, um, and we also use imaging too much. Uh, several other things is neurosurgery is a pretty small community. So as orthopedic surgery, as I look at my own training, how much non-operative training did I get in spine? About zero. Right. And so there's a misconception uh, and you look upon the residencies and these things is the musculoskeletal surgeon often is the wrong provider to triage. And um, people don't really think about it. Um, I'm going to see a spine specialist. I'm going to see a hip specialist. You don't think about it. Is it a surgeon or not? The analogy would be if you had chest pain today and I sent you to a cardiothoracic heart surgeon tomorrow, seems a little bizarre. That is the norm referral pattern for musculoskeletal. And there's some papers if you end up in the surgeon's office first that you're seven times more likely to have surgery. And it's not that we're bad people. It's what we know. I like to say, if you, if you go to the sushi restaurant, you're probably going to get to serve sushi. <laughs> uh, right. it's, it's, what, it's, what, it's what we know. And so thinking about my own training and my colleagues' training is you have a surgical lens for surgeons versus do you have a non-operative lens first and then things are surgical. And subconscious bias is, is strong and it's not a small nuance. Uh, it's the... Mexico versus U.S. judicial system. Are you guilty first or are you innocent first? Flipping that sentence around has very strong implications about actually what happens on the ground. And so really the way to view it is you want the best surgeon's quality, but they really should be further down the pipeline. And so who's the cardiologist corollary is really physical medicine, rehabilitation, non-operative sports medicine, um, physical therapy partly, but they don't have prescribing powers. They can't order appropriate imaging. They can't really talk to people about pros and cons of referring to a surgeon and don't have referring powers like that. And so really need a care team um, to put all of those things together. And then um, on the non-operative side, imaging is overused over 80% of the time. And um, lots of primary care providers don't really love the sector. It's a lot of touch points, not enough time. They're overworked. 
They got to write the meds. They got to care navigate. They got to order the uh, referral to physical therapy. They got to order the image if it makes sense. They got to review the image with the patient. They got to write the referral to um, the surgeon. Uh, they got to preoperative risk stratify the patient. There's like endless touch points and they're the care navigator. And so um, if you want to help empower clinicians on the ground is, can you help the primary care providers pain points? Can you help the surgeons pain points? They have pain points too. Can you help patients pain points? Can you help payers pain points? And so paying a lot of money for expensive things. So the way we really like to think about ourselves is we're a people company who happens to also practice medicine. And can we really help people? Obviously the main is patients and getting them to meet their goals and really empower humanity to live a more powerful life and a better life. But can you also empower all people? which is clinicians on the ground and payers. It's like all of these groups that you work with in an ecosystem, they're just people at the end of the day. Can you make it a win-win-win for everybody is how we try to push the limits to transform care. And is that part of what you see as the differentiation? Uh, it's, it's becoming um, an increasingly crowded field on the musculoskeletal side or behavioral health or one of the, any of these you know single focus areas. But- um, I don't want to answer for you, but it sounds like um, both the focus on the appropriate pathway, number one, and number two, becoming a platform that musculoskeletal is a start, but not the finish for what you're trying to do at Vori. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's, that's one way to, um, to state it and what would add to is medical practice is the, is a big differentiator is um, other folks in the, uh, musculoskeletal space tend to be physical therapy only, mm-hmm. um, physical therapy drives value, um, physicians drive value, health coaches drive value, registered dietitians drive value. And really think about it. One plus one plus one can equal a hundred. And that's like an orchestra. Each, each individual provider group is a musical instrument right. that has its value, inherent value that drives, um, X, Y, and Z. But if you actually put them together in the right combination with the right pathway and right structure, it's a sums of more of its parts. Like you can't actually describe the musical sound that comes from an orchestra when you put all the things together. If things are slightly off, it's cacophony. And if they're right together, the sum is more than its parts. And so um, really what we think about is um, the other folks in the MSK space could certainly be collaborators if they want to be. I view them in the space, um, but don't view them as doing exactly what we're doing. And uh, always, always happy to work with others. The space is ginormous, trying to help people. And um, I do think more and more of startups should work together. Um, otherwise, we're just better silos of the old world. It's like there's a kidney company, there's an MSK company, there's a PCP company, there's a cardiac company, there's a mental health company. And if we really don't reach out and collaborate more and more and more, you fast forward five years, 10 years, then you're just better silos of the old world, in my opinion. doesn't mean you didn't drive value, but you're, you're just better silos. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. And it's anybody who's ever worked in a hospital in pretty much any capacity realizes how uh, independent each individual operating part is, even if they... Um, work closely together. Um, you know, there are some exceptions that I saw on the, uh, in an academic medical center where 
the transplant nephrologists are, you know, hand in glove with the transplant surgeons. Um, but those are rare enough that you, it's noticeable when it actually happens and, and, and not, um, not the norm by any stretch, I think would be surprising for folks that hadn't seen the operational side of a, of a hospital. No, it's, no, it's a great point. The way I think about uh, health systems, this country and other countries, it's a big office building with a bunch of independent companies. And so Department of Neurosurgery, Department of Physical Therapy, Imaging, everybody has its own scheduling system, different PLs, mm -hmm. different managers, nobody talks to each other. Like, we, like you'd like send a referral, which in essence is a, is a note to your partners down the hall, hey, I'm gonna send someone to you, and now it's your problem, or it's your issue. Mm -hmm. And um, really the analogy I use with people who haven't really like worked in it or, or thought about how it really works, it's the food court in an airport or the food court <laughs> in a mall. Everybody's there, Starbucks, McDonald's, the Italian place, the sushi place, they're just share overhead. Nobody's actually working together. They mm -hmm. can see each other, but they're not actually working together. And the same thing is usually the case if you audit a multi-specialty group. Because what the first thing people will say is, oh, we already do this. We got physical therapy. We got physicians. Find me at large the last time a physician and a physical therapist actually talked to each other about a patient. Like, like really talk to each other. Like, not like, oh, I, sh I share a cubicle next to them. But actually talk, had a conversation. The multi-specialty groups are usually just also referral. It's like, all right, I'm going to send you to my college. Oh, you want coffee? Starbucks is right there. And, right. and it's really, it's, and it's, it's not the same as working together and being a care team. And one of the re and I think it's one of the big reasons that traditional medicine has struggled to be able to actually bring powerful new programs because it's hard to mobilize your silos when you're actually all independent functioning units. And I also think why it's, it's been challenging for people who've tried to only care navigate musculoskeletal. Mm -hmm. If that's all you're doing, it's extremely challenging because you're trying to care navigate multiple different specialty groups versus something more like a quartet or a mental health company where you're only trying to care navigate to one group. I need to get you to a mental health provider versus I need to get you to a physical therapist and a mental health provider and a sports medicine physician and a surgeon and an imaging provider and X, Y, and Z, that's a whole new set of masks if you're only care navigating. Yeah, that makes total sense. And, you know, one thing that I'm curious about, given the trajectory of your own career as a, as a physician and entrepreneur, what, what capabilities are around now that make Vori possible that not pre-Nomad when you were thinking about it? And, and maybe that's just the will to do it. Um, but I'm curious, is it a tech issue? Is it an operational thing? Is it contracting capabilities? Like what, what, what makes Vori right now versus before your other companies that, when you were thinking about this? No, I think it, I think it's a better timing in the market. Um, I don't think tech has changed drastically so much that that's the secret sauce per se. Certainly, um, there are increasing big data analytics and other things that are powerful to care delivery, but not the tech-enabled services component. I don't think that that has been the revolutionary change. It's all the data analytics in the background have changed for triage and things that can make care better. 
that those data analytics don't really help you organize the silos that exist on the ground. And so um, I think the pandemic certainly helped give telemedicine a boost of like, oh, we got to actually use it. This is actually a, a great tool right. um, and then people to pay more attention to it. So I think there's the timing from the pandemic and what that's done to virtual care and make it more acceptable and more thought about. I think I um, appreciate those who were first in alternative payment mechanisms in the primary care realm, the IR house of the world, the Oak Street house of the world of, all right, well, what can we do? Bruce space contracting in a sector like PCP. Then, can, oh, can we do that in the kidney realm? Because besides surgical bundles, there's not really at large anybody doing sophisticated alternative payment mechanisms in MSK. Um, the other groups in the employer world are a PNPM where they'll guarantee some ROI. That's not the same as risk. Right. That's not really, that's not really an alternative payment mechanism. That's really a subscription to a service and with a warranty on it. Um, I don't view that as the same. And MSK is a top spend on 90% of the self-insured employers. It is becoming a growing concern of traditional insurers, the blues and um, Medicare. And it's like, you look at CMMI, that's public. It's like, what are they working on? Like lower back pain, non-operative bundle is top on the list. Mm -hmm. And so it is becoming a growing concern of, of cost. Um, the great increase of, of spine fusions and instrumentation has got the payers looking at that more closely. And so I think the timing of the market for risk-based contracts, alternative payment mechanisms, MSK becoming a growing spend where it's like literally number one on 90% of the employers and becoming number one on even some of the traditional payers is there's cost drivers. And, um, and those who came into the market first with virtual PT um, uh, who keep growing, I, I think have also helped have the market pay attention more. Right. So I think the hinge and swords have helped people pay attention more to the well, MSK is a problem and we should maybe pay attention to it more. And so um, I think it's all synergistic and I think more and more players that come in, I think, I think it's good. I think competition's good. It pushes people to differentiate, it pushes people to be better. The market's ginormous. And so I, I think they can even collaborate if you wanted. And um it gets people to pay attention more to bring change. So I think like, if you're the only player in the space, like you've got to wonder, like, am I missing something? Right. Is there enough demand? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what I love having heard you speak about uh, Vori health and the mission and the, the vision for it is there's a real patient centricity to it that the, the patient benefits from having all those additional touch points. Can you talk a bit about that? Like where does the patient fit? into your vision for, for Vori Health and in the, the roadmap that you have for what it can become? No, it's a great question. Um, I fundamentally don't believe healthcare is patient-centric. We'll start there. I think we strive to be. It's the New Year's resolution that never gets realized. And, <laughs> and, and what I mean by that, it's how we're trained. Anybody listening, go join a physician today on rounds. Pick your elite institution on U.S. News or pick your elite institution in Europe and go on rounds with them and just observe. There's a 50-year-old COVID patient. There's a 62-year-old recovering from a heart attack. Here's the 80-year-old who fell down the stairs. 
What's their names? Oh, hold on. Let me look. Um, how's the patient doing? Doesn't mean how are they doing like on the street? Right. It means how are their vital signs and they responding to the antibiotics or the infusion at the nursing station? If there are any emotional issues, which means being human, like talking to them, <laughs> that is why that we set up social work. Like literally it's thought of as a separate silo. And um, think about your own journeys in a clinician office. It's rare. When does the clinician, and I've been guilty of this, of how I've trained, not talk at the patient. You need to lose weight. You need to stop smoking. You need to take your blood pressure meds. You need to exercise. You need to get an MRI. You need, you need, you need this. You need to do that. And if you don't do it, you're non-compliant, not adherent. That is paternalism at its finest. And it, those types of words have even permeated into the digital health world. What's the adherence rate? That's like, that's not, that is not human centric. That is a hierarchy of, did you adhere to what I told you to do versus what's the participation rate? They're not small nuances, like mindset's no. very important. And I, I've done this analogy before, of, if you really want to be patient centric, what's important to Nancy who comes in with back pain? If you focus a person on their pain, they do worse. What is she missing in her life that's important to her that this is interfering with? You have to peg it to something. Nancy wants to go bowling. Nancy wants to walk a mile with her kid named Kyle. So the whole care plan's got to be based around walking with Kyle. You can follow, you follow patient report outcomes. You follow VAST, visual analog scale, and all of these other utilization metrics. I don't think any patient cares about any of those. Like that's not important. It's like the, those are like the oil gauge in the car and like how much is the battery charge in your car? Yeah, those are all data elements. How many people even know what that means inside their own vehicle? Right. They just want to get somewhere on a journey and all of this other stuff is meaningless to them. Of uh, I want to walk with Kyle. That's all that matters to me. Um, and take somebody on an evidence-based journey and really understand what's important to them as a human being. We don't do that in medicine at large. We talk at people. And so I really think that the um, medical world, I don't think we intended it to be that way, but I think it's phys physician, or I should say clinician centric. The clinician is the center of the show who tells and bestows what they think is best for the patient. And it's still much, very much like that. It's even how we write notes in the chart, it's just an age with a bunch of diseases. And then why did this person come here today? Doesn't matter what they are, what they're important to them versus flipping on its head of what's really important to the individual in their journey um, is very powerful. And there's tons of evidence around, like if you really want to make a difference in somebody's life, you need to listen to them and they need to be heard, but truly heard, not like, oh, they ask questions, <laughs> truly heard. When you were talking about the um, the persona Nancy, it reminds me of uh, Clay Christensen, the late Harvard Business School professor, uh, once said that people don't uh, need a three inch drill bit; they need a three inch depth hole in their wall, and they get the drill bit to do that. And you need to understand the distinction between the two on the business side, because you may want to sell them the drill bit, but what they actually need is that hole. So, and it's a key distinction for, for any of these business models that, that you have. So, um, and I think it's, it's, it's obviously relevant in clinical medicine and even more so when you're trying to deliver that 
in a different way than people are used to. So um, that's a really interesting framing. Yeah, it, it's no, it's a, it's a different way to practice or think, and it's not small. Like, I uh, people will it's like people when they first listen to it, they're like, "Oh, I do that." You're like, "No, we, we don't." No, we, we we don't do that. That's like, um, and the experience tends to be not is is an afterthought. Like, did did. Did um, Peloton build a better treadmill? I don't think so. I think they built better content in a social community to make the home gym less boring. Um, it's an engagement. Like that they want like social network, communicating with folks. What's important with people is it's not a small type of nuance in terms of trying to really understand where somebody is on their journey. And that's very hard for traditional clinicians to do because we don't get trained that way. And so I don't think any of us are bad people, but I look at my own training, I'm like, paternalism all the way. Yeah. And, and, and then you reflect on like, how are we training our residents? New, the new physicians of the world, right? Paternalism all the way. Um, and do we really understand what the patient's trying to achieve um, and what they're trying to get to on their goal? Um, is really very powerful. And I think the other analogy of, I've, I've mentioned in the past is the college student. Where you focus somebody has a huge impact on how they do and how they actually make through their journey. So do you focus the college student on, oh, you got a mom and dad's house, you're gonna learn all these, you're gonna meet all these people, you might meet your spouse, you're, you're gonna, world's your oyster, you're gonna learn so many things, figure out potentially your career, get a diploma, Wow, that's just so exciting. Or you focus them on, which is also a true reality. You're going to be up late at night doing term papers and studying and worried about grades and how you're going to pay for all of this and failing out and disappointing your family. That's also a true reality. And medicine tends to focus people on what's your pain now? How's your pain now? How's your pain now? Versus the other one of the end goal of the diploma or the education keep that's walking with Kyle. That's the end goal for the athlete. You focus the athlete on all of the um, practices they do to the point of exhaustion and they're thinking about quitting the team or are you focusing them on the awesome people they're working with and the championship they're going to get to and, the, and we're, we're going to win. Um, it's not a small distinction, but um, medicine, we, I, I really strongly think we focus people on, on these metrics and very narrow very paternalistic and that's how people talk you know what's the adherence rate what's this like what's the vast did the, did the pain go from nine to eight point two six like no patient cares that the length of stay was 2.2 days they want to walk with kyle like did they, can they walk with kyle that's what's important to the patient and even and and, and i agree with you i think it's not it's not it, it's not bad intentions but in the surgical subspecialties in particular, it's particularly uh, difficult because so much of that performance metric is about the OR. It's about, you know, can you be in and out quicker? Can you do, you know, skin to skin and with, with less anesthesia, um, which are all important, but that performative aspect, I think sometimes blurs the underlying needs of the patient. Um, and, uh -huh. you know, that, that's a challenge. 100%. And, and don't get me wrong, like you should follow those metrics. They're good for utilization or think about the airplane. Did anybody pick their airplane based on the engines that are there or that or the utilization metrics that the pilots watch? Right. No, you need all those things. 
people pace it on access, convenience, cost, experience, like, wow, like they're so nice to me on the plane or whatever it is, or their loyalty rewards or, or X, Y, and Z. And um, I think that the metrics that we should follow, which, which we do, are just not meaningful to the patient. And, what's, and, and so it's who's your audience. Those metrics are good for optimizing your workflows and talking to payers and like each other in the medical thing. Like, how do we be more efficient? But that's not personalized medicine. Like, like that's Kyle. Like, why does someone go on the plane? They want to go see their loved one. They pick the plane to, to or go on vacation. That's the end goal. And really think medicine should be practiced in a similar manner. Ryan, this has been fantastic. One, one final question uh, to leave us with here. Um, focusing on your own journey as a, as a leader in the startup space, do you have a do you have advice that you give other folks looking to to start a company in the healthcare space? Yeah, it's um, it could go on all day about that. Is <laughs> right. it it's it's really about following your gut. Um, and I, I always tell people, I still think the hardest part to being in a startup is managing your own emotions, fear of the unknown. Is it going to work? You're starting something new. There's going to be lots of challenges. Um, and versus like in a non-startup world, it's like, you know, the routine, right? It's, it's more like the hospital routine is like, here's your clinic. Here's the OR day, relatively structured. You're taking call and you know, X, Y, and Z. And as you're trying to transform or innovate, Innovate is, innovation's messy. And so um, um, I like how uh, Apple Computer talks about good mess. You want good mess to change the world. It's got to be good mess. Good mess is good. You don't want bad mess where it's cacophony and you're like figuring it out. But some of it is like the Michelin star chef. Does every new dish they make resonate with their customers? No. Some people like, don't like that. And so it's also being very honest um, and eyes wide open and learning and testing of what do your customers love and what do they not love and not getting so enamored by what, what you're building. If your customers don't like it, you need to change it. If like, I'm not a big fan of pink, but if the, if the data clearly tells me that the customers love pink on the door, the door is going to be pink. It's not what I want. It's what the customer like, how well do you know your customer and what do they want? And you only know that by getting endless feedback and endless feedback, and you're going to change things and you're going to evolve things. And there's going to be stuff that you thought might work. You're like, well, nobody likes that. So we got to change that. And um, that can be very emotionally scarring to some people. Like, well, I worked on this for four months and people don't like it. Right. Well, we learned something that people don't like. What can we learn from about it? Um, it's, it's just a lesson of education. It's not like, oh, but people have a hard time, I think, separating of them, their, their soul versus what they're working on. And so the roller coaster of the startup for most people when they're honest is like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Oh, this is hard. Oh, customers don't like this part. I built that part. They think it sucks. I must suck. And people run through this. That's where they, right. that's where they immediately jump is up. Oh, People didn't respond well to what I built, so I must suck. That's that is a very common drop 
Uh, um, and so I think talking about it and people really thinking about it because the, the media really glamorizes the startup world. It's, right. it's, it's a lot of hard work not to under, and there's a lot of things that are like, it's like college. Like there are required classes that you have to take that are not fun. Setting up all the legal infrastructure to serve medicine for 50 states is not an enjoyable process, right? Going through customs and TSA is not the most enjoyable process in the world. Um, and waiting for the airport all day um, is not an enjoyable process, but that is just sort of the cost of doing business. And so um, I think when people watch like Silicon Valley and some of these other things, there's like, it's like, it seems to be like only awesome. Right. And don't get me wrong. It is awesome. But there are parts that you have to do that just require a business to operate that are no one who wants to do their taxes all day. Well, maybe I guess accountants like that, but like who wants to do their taxes all day long? Like for most people, that's not enjoyable. Right. And, but there are things that you just have to do to make the business viable. And that's part of the job. Dr. Ryan Grant, founder and CEO of Vori Health. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com slash startups.